You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Tyler Mincy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So you are a principal at Bolt. Bolt.io is is the website. Well, tell tell us about Bolt, uh, and then we'll go into the the big the big picture, which is like hardware and what it looks like from an investor's perspective today. Yeah, absolutely. So Bolt is a VC firm. We um, specialize in leading pre-seed investments. So we're typically the first institutional investors and in all the the companies we back. And the category that we invest in or the area we like to describe as where culture and technology intersect. So we're always looking for, you know, the large companies and the large successes that will exist in, you know, five, 10 years from now. And and we're really focused on trend spotting what's coming in the future. So um, all of our companies have a strong um, kind of deep technology component to what they're building, but it's really about addressing some uh, changing demand in the the customer space. Um, that's that's usually driven by a cultural change, whether that's an emerging external factor like climate crisis or or generational change. In the past, usually when those two things are intersecting, a lot of times those companies and products um, have a footprint in the real world. So a large portion of the portfolio um, does have a, a have a hardware thing, or they're they're involved in advanced manufacturing in some way too. So you'll see a lot of that in our portfolio companies if you if you check them out. Yeah, that's an interesting framing. Has that changed a little bit over time for Bolt? Because I absolutely I remember you maybe like the intersection of the things you were interested in has changed in some way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when Bolt Bolt started back in 2013, and we were more narrowly focused on connected hardware specifically, still investing at the same stage, um, we use that same culture and technology framework um, internally for the for the the companies we were looking at. Um, and really, as the as the fund has has continued to grow, we've really expanded the the types of companies where we we've been investing in, but but still pulling on that same common thread. So we have like a gigantic list of to- topics that we're not going to get to, but I want to like establish your bona fides just so that people know because you've done so much and you're still like you've got all these side projects that we'll get into. But you were at Apple for you know some of the most exciting years I would say uh, of, of its history. You know from around the time that that the iPhone launched and you were working on the iPod side. Explain what you did at at Apple and maybe some of the highlights since then. Yeah, absolutely. So I was at Apple from 2006 to 2011. Super exciting time to be at the company. Um, It was, you know, when Steve Jobs was still around um, and I was working in the iPod team, which was sneakily the iPod and iPhone team at the the time, but um, that wasn't public knowledge. So my first project was I was the the engineering project manager for the touchscreen for the first generation iPhone. So wow. kind of equal parts um, design studio, engineering lab, and uh, supply chain um, at the factory. Lots of work, you know, standing up the supply chain to be able to build the world's first um, mass produced multi touch display. So. That was a, a massive project, but really shocking how small the team was at the time. When I started, we still all got in one big conference room and stood up and, and introduced ourselves personally when every, a new person started. I think we were just a you know hundred something people in, in uh, kind of the iPod group there at the time. Um, so it really felt like a startup inside the larger company. It was amazing, you know, what the what the team was able to achieve. We had you know one of the kind of sit down meetings and, and kind of crunch time right before a ramp where Steve was kind of telling everyone, it was definitely a pep talk around, sorry, everyone's not spending as much time with their friends and family as they used to be, but 
the details really matter. This is how we this is how we show we care about our customers and more people are going to be working on this type of product in the company than anything else in the future, which seemed almost hard to believe at the time, but was uh, you know absolutely true. And so, yeah, it was just a really special time to be there and really, really proud of, of kind of what we achieved as a small group. Yeah, I have so many questions just about that, but I want to just keep cruising. Yeah. And so but by the end of my time there, I was managing the iPod product line. So the Shuffle, Nano, Classic and Touch. I was, you know, spending personally most of my day-to-day time working working on the roadmap, talking about features and and definition of what the future should look like, managing a small new technology team that would look at emerging technology and, and figuring out how it should how it could or should slot into um, the product roadmap and potentially trickle out to other Apple products um, uh, from there. Um, the iPod was in a really important testing ground for for new technology um, at the time. What, I have a question about iPods. I, this is a oh, question yeah. I like. Nobody w- will ever care about this or ask this question of you again. But were you involved in the shuffle that had no screen, no buttons, or anything? Like there was a tiny shuffle that was like, yep. I don't know, like one stick of gum or smaller, like half a stick of yeah. gum. And they made the badass, the badass silver bullet, the the stainless steel version of it too. Yeah. Um, what is that thing called? <laughs> um, it, yeah, it was the shuffle. I forget exactly which generation that was. Um, maybe it was maybe like the third or fourth generation shuffle. But I think it only lasted one generation, right? I think mm-hmm. they went back to buttons, and maybe that was right around the time that like it became cheap enough to make little screens, touch screens, and stuff like yep. that. I don't know. There was this really tiny shuffle. Yeah, <laughs> I just remember it like, and you could only play it on shuffle. I don't think you could even do any anything else with it right 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 well um yeah that's i like i could so just nerd out on the the product design around that and yes that was you know i that i wasn't um leading that project um myself at the time i, I was i was working on on the uh, the nanos that existed in that in the time frame but it was yeah really close to like literally two doors down in my uh, in the in the hall working on that product and so yeah that was just a really interesting experiment in a minimal in a minimal interface i mean that's kind of what made the shuffle so beautiful to start with is you didn't it didn't ask you to make a playlist or or move songs around or decide what you wanted you just plugged it in and, and started listening so um it was sort of the purest distillation of that user experience there's a quote that we used to have like at the lumi office i hope i'm going to remember it exactly which is like uh, only those who are willing to go too far <laughs> will ever go far enough or something like that <laughs> and and so i felt like when i saw that i was like this has gone too far yes this thing has no buttons if you how do you even interact with it um but i loved that it mm-hmm. existed but then there was there was like some heavy interaction where you basically needed to know this morse code style um, interface to click on the headset to make it do different things um that was, that yeah. was a little hard for people i think it just basically had it on off switch and a you know, plug for the headphones. Um, that, that's pretty incredible. Um, right. And it charged, it charged over the headphone port, which was r- difficult as well. <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh my gosh. Okay. So then I don't know if you know this, but I was, I was at Brooklyn beta. You were part of fictive kin in this whole kind of group that still existed doing, uh, um, incredible like UI design and websites and so on. Uh, but also had a really, really cool event series. Um, yeah, I think I went to like the, 2012 or 2013 one it was in a huge like i never went back to that to like the brooklyn ship naval yard or something it was a it was amazing yeah the navy as the ducal greenhouse in the in the naval yard there yeah when they just opened it up it was an amazing space reggie watts did a thing that it was incredible i like i actually recorded part of that because it was such a specific if people don't know reggie watts he's like so good but also he 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 did a specific performance that only like ui nerds would care about <laughs> 
I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, he like crafted an amazing performance very specifically for the audience. Yeah, I have a recording of part of it on my phone because I thought it was so good that I had to capture part of it. What was your role at Fictive Kin and like what you were doing with that? What were you trying to do? So Fictive Kin is a digital product studio that is kind of nominally based in New York, but we had a distributed team with people on the West Coast and the UK and Denmark, um, really all over the country, some some folks in Montreal and, and Indiana as well. Fictive Kin, just if you don't know what the term means, it means just people you that are your family that are not you're not related by blood, but you you know call your call your family. So that was really the the ethos of the of the agency. You know, some of my best friends that I've known for decades were you know part of that. So. Um, all of our titles were just partner. Um, mm. We had a very you know flat organization that really I think instilled independent decision making and ownership of the product decisions and, and how the business was working. So um, so that was a big a big part of the organization. I think you know my day to day job was was effectively being a product or project manager. So we were kind of a soup to nuts product studio. So we had um, brand designers, UI UX designers, and then a very deep engineering staff that would define and develop um, web and mobile apps at the time. So, you know, the kind of the full the full stack of, um, of software applications. Um, our business model was really to partner with people that wanted, that had an idea and wanted to launch a thing. We would work for um, a few months um, defining and developing the products, launch it and judge initial traction. And usually if that was going well, we would spin it out into its own company um, and hire a sustaining team and, and, and kind of let it run from there. We did that with some Folks like Atlantic Media, BetaWorks, uh, the woman Tina is Swiss Miss Online. We made this w- um, web app uh, to do, which yeah. is still going after ten years. It's like a beautiful, a beautiful, uh, sustainable T U X. Yeah, Tux Tux. <laughs> yeah, if people are looking it up and just typing to do into Google. That's not going to work. Yeah, T E U X T E U X. And so, yeah, we you know we would we would work on kind of internal projects like that, and then effectively client services, but in a model that. Where the goal was to spin out sustainable sustainable businesses from there, yeah, I was doing that for a number of years, and then we did this conference, Brooklyn Beta, kind of on the side. It's one of those things that started off as a side project and got enormous um, yeah. because we just had all these friends that were designers that would complain all the time that they don't know developers to help them build a thing, and then we knew a bunch of developers who wanted to work on a project and then you know thought they, they thought they needed to, to meet a designer to help them craft the experience better, and, and then you know we just decided to invite some of those people to get together in, in, in Brooklyn uh, one year. And then you know it went from tens of people, maybe a hundred, in the, at the at the first one to a like fifteen hundred person event um, by by the fifth year. Yeah, it, this was at the height of uh, me and Jesse running Incodie, and we were like very at the center of the maker movement. And I remember Tim O'Reilly was there, who like sort of was part of coining the concept of. Um, of the maker movement, and like was describing it. I think he had a talk the year that I I went and. That was the year also, like right after XOXO started, um, which mm-hmm. was another kind of similar type of event, which is still going and really incredible. <laughs> so that that is like, those are some really fond memories for me of like going to those events. And actually, I think that's right around the time I started the first iteration of this podcast, which at the time was called Edgemade. And it was only about <laughs> hardware. It was about indie hardware uh products, which kind of leads leads us into this conversation. I want to touch on like Pearl Automation as well, which you spent some time at. What What is that company for people who don't know? Yeah, Pearl Automation um, was a startup that was um, trying to help people improve the car experience with the vehicle, the vehicles they have. So every time you get in a new car, you're, you're typically blown away by all of the new technology that mm-hmm. exists in that new vehicle. Maybe, maybe that's when you bought a car. Maybe that's when you've when you've rented a car. And, and that's because we typically don't 
upgrade the vehicle or driving on a very frequent cadence. You know, maybe it's five years, 10 years before, before you buy a new vehicle. Um, we know how quickly um, consumer electronics technology is evolving right now, and cars are more and more software driven and, and powered by the same that same technology, whether it's from precise location to the infotainment system to the cameras that are driving ADAS systems. So the technology in cars are developing much more quickly than, than consumer upgrade cycles. So that startup was all about trying to make uh, systems that people could add on and to their existing vehicles and upgrade them with some of the some of the existing the existing features that are that are on new cars today. It's really about uh, about circumventing the the supply chain that exists in the automotive space right now. So every time there's a new you know uh, software approach or a new chip or a new camera sensor, um, those things have to trickle down through a very long, slow uh, supply chain of going through the you know tier one technology vendors like the Valeos or Continentals of the world that get designed into reference designs that then pe- that then those companies show to the OEMs. Um, or, you know, are, are specced out by them. So, uh, and then those get designed into new car platforms that ship in three or five years. And then those cars are supposed to last for 20 years. Um, and that's really just a, a, a broken, a broken cycle for rapidly evolving technology. So I think in the past, if we were just talking about like your infotainment system getting better, um, it might not have been, you know, quite as compelling, but really those, those technology systems are driving critical life-saving safety features and, and some of the, the, um, driver assistance systems. Our mission was to, to to try to rapidly deploy some of those driver assistance safety systems um, to the existing uh, fleet of cars. What so? What happened to to Pearl ultimately, or is it still out there? I, so I was part of the the founding team. We you know started off with an approach where we designed our our first product that was fairly feature rich. It was a rear vision system. It basically looked like a cam- uh, a license plate frame that you could you could attach to the to the back of your vehicle. And it combined a number of different safety features. So it like was a backup camera. You could you could see behind your car. It was really a full computer vision system. So it could detect objects, um, whether it was you know, obstacles behind your car or cross traffic, um, you know, crossing behind the path of your car. So it did things that some of the um, cross traffic detection radar systems could do, and and the sonar systems that you know give you the beeps that let you know how how far away obstacles are to the back of your car. So. It really replaced um, or, or you know duplicated the functionality of three different kind of rear safety systems for for the vehicle. And would you sell that to the end consumer to like mount themselves, basically? Exactly. If you've ever like shopped around for a backup camera that you can add on to your car, even just the simple you know mm-hmm. that only did one of those three functional things, um, they're very difficult to install for a normal person. They usually involve like drilling through your trunk. They have, you have to splice into your running lights and, and they look really bad too. And so it's, it's just not really even a, a feasible thing for most people to do, especially if you, if you, you know, care about your vehicle. Um, so we designed ours to be like fully wireless and solar powered. So you, you literally just uh, screwed on a mounting plate that looked like a normal a license plate frame, the camera clipped, clipped onto the, the back of your vehicle. And then all that communicated with the, with your cell phone. Are you familiar with a startup called Comma AI? Yes, definitely. Explain that startup because I feel like that's like taking what you're describing to like take that cubed. And it's just like now the thing is an aftermarket. I don't know. I guess it just runs on a phone and somehow like you can like plug it into your car and then the car drives itself and it works with a whole bunch of like 
off-the-shelf cars. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they make a little kit uh, that's a software-hardware combination that, yeah, you strap a cell phone, you know, to your windshield, basically. And then that gets all piped into the, you know, car control systems in your, in your vehicle. Have you tried it out? Um, I haven't tried it out myself personally. I, I don't know that I would feel totally safe uh, trying that out. But, you know, those are the types of things we were experimenting with, too. So, you know, we were doing you know, we could drive cars with Xbox controllers and do automatic braking. And, you know, we were doing, we were doing a lot of that same, that same functionality, but wanted to take a little bit more of a kind of a a careful, careful approach there. Um, I think ultimately you do need to work with the automotive manufacturers and not, and not be, um, be something that they, that they tell you not to, not to add to your vehicle. So that was a little more of my approach. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know like which vehicles this comma AI works with. I think there's like a subset of ones that kind of have all of the necessary stuff. Yes, you need you need a car that has the hooks basically to do you know automatic steering or or you know lane keeping. Um, so that some of those high level features have to exist on the on the car for you to be able to hack them. Yeah, I feel like if I was Toyota or whoever it is that <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> what I would think about uh, yeah. comma AI. Um, I think it's a really interesting. I guess their model is like they're trying to be the Android of self-driving somehow, where like they can build mm-hmm. this technology um, to to do the driving part, of, like to do the you know lane keeping and recognition and all of that kind of stuff, and then sell it back to the to the manufacturers at some point to the car manufacturers. Totally. I think it makes yep. sense. Um, as a strategy, like if you think of Tesla as like the Apple in that market. Yep. I, I mean, it's, it's um, you know, the automotive space is so safety critical that I think we'll see how that some of that plays out. I think if they really, if they re- end up developing a, a very large developer community, maybe they win over smaller closed systems. But, um, but in general, I don't necessarily want Android driving my car as opposed to, yeah. to an Apple model. Uh, so, yeah. Well, a good friend of mine I, I started this company called Mapillary. I don't know if you've ever seen oh, yeah. Mapillary. Totally. Yeah, they, they are, were trying to do um, sort of crowdsourced street view. So it was another thing where you <laughs> strap a camera onto your car. But now like you are, you, you know, when you see those Google cars driving around capturing streets, or if you go into the you know, street view on, on Google Maps, that's all done by Google cars. And Mapillary is trying to do like an open source version of that. And I was amazed by the fact that they could convince people to do this. Like they, they got like, I don't know how many, but it wasn't like everyone was doing it, but they have a lot of people who are hobbyists and are part of creating this like open data set. And so I, I, I find it interesting that like Kama AI sort of has that similar mentality where there's like, I don't know <laughs> if I want to trust my life to like a, a, like a phone. But yeah, I think it's interesting that there are some people who are willing to to be part of that experiment and really help contribute to it in a way that is, you know, building this new system somehow. Absolutely. And, and that really is the future. Like every each one of these smart connected cameras you get on the road are like become data data collection platforms too. So I think that that's one of the the most powerful things that, that Tesla has going for them too. I mean their their cars are a data collection platform that feed back into HD maps, that feed back into autonomous driving. Yeah, it's it's a really an advantage. And that's how Cruise started off building um, adaptive cruise control systems for Audis too. Like that, that was really the, the kind of the the origin of of, of that company. That's true. Um, and th- I think they were very smart to to pivot very quickly. I think one of the things they discovered is is that a lot of those a lot of those features um, from a customer point of view are a little bit more of a nice to have than a must have. And I think they they quickly you know more quickly pivoted to kind of full autonomous driving. 
Yeah, the the whole electrification is that something that Bolt as a as a VC has looked at in terms of you know there's just so many companies involved in that space now from like either a software or hardware standpoint. Yeah, for sure. Um, we have been you know tracking trends there uh, carefully um, and have made a few investments. Like there's a company Point One Navigation um, in the portfolio that that does a um, a precise vehicle location uh, uh, system that's. That actually is is um, has some software and hardware components, but it's mostly software doing doing sensor fusion um, with uh, with a number of the different uh, the different um, uh, sensors and and location systems on the vehicle, um, just to help help precisely you know locate your vehicle in space. So we have made some investments and in, in some um, you know interesting technology verticals, but the the space in general is very complex with how companies relate to the existing players. Um, and the you know the timeline to revenue is very very long when uh, companies have to kind of trickle through the existing supply chain, and so that's just difficult to make work for for a startup sometimes. Yeah, I, I am always amazed by how those companies get funded in general, like products that will take you know five to ten years to get to market or to any kind of scale. I mean, there are a lot of I'm thinking of like companies like canoe i don't know if you know that one like mm-hmm, totally uh and there was other ones like faraday future but uh I, I think that one may have died i'm not totally sure what's going on with it <laughs> yeah that might have been a, a scam from the start uh, yeah there's a lot of um i guess electric vehicle or autonomous driving or even in the like sort of smaller vehicle space of like delivery type of vehicles that are autonomous on wheels or flying i mean it's kind of just an amazing uh, amount of innovation that's happening there. And it's hard to tell, like, I mean, if you're putting your investor hat on, how do you even go about evaluating that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for for um, most of those applications, it's all about how close they are to demand. I think I think people just developing core technology, but the, and then kind of exploring the application space, like are, are usually very, very challenged. I think if people are deep enough in a specific market that they can they can understand where there is some short term demand and they have a they have a story around how to either build the de- develop devices fully themselves or or integrate with the existing supply chain quickly to be able to tap into that i think i think there can be something you know something special there um, but lots of complexities complexities around the regulatory environment for for some of those applications that that are that are difficult so so i think it's all about seeing a a path that um that connects technology that, that's actually shippable in a reasonable amount of time to demand that fits in the same time frame. To bring it to something that might be a little more relatable for <laughs> the audience, um, we have, you know, at Lumia, we're working on helping provide tools for packaging for all kinds of like direct-to-consumer companies who are oftentimes taking a physical product and bringing it like to a direct to consumer type of uh, business model. And I think like the lowest bar that where you can start with that is something like taking an an existing like reference design or off the shelf product and basically like repackaging it somehow for a different audience. But then there are, you know, kind of many levels above Mm -hmm. that in terms of how much, you know, you're bringing your own IP or unique kind of combination of of like value propositions to that product it seems like there's been an explosion of those types of companies that are early stage have a physical product somehow but they do need probably to pay for some tooling or do some things like that um some of them have been able to go through kickstarter but like when you're looking at it as an investor and they're pre-revenue pre like anything how do you even like decide whether or not to invest in them 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for us, for our, our, uh, asset category, you know, we are basically managing a fund that, um, our LPs haven't, have invested in. There's kind of some expectation on returns and timelines. So, um, the way that the VC business has typically worked is it's really been a hits driven business. So a large portion of the returns are usually driven by a relatively small, small, um, portion of the portfolio. Um, so we always are looking at whether there is a, a really large outcome uh, that's possible for for a given business. So you know we're we're typically trying to understand what a what their user base would look like with their given business model, and is there a path to them being a billion dollar plus company? So that's really a kind of a, a qualifying bar for us, uh, at least for us us specifically. You're, you're thinking about the market size. There is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So it's 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 kind of a looking at their total addressable market with their with their given business model, um, and trying to understand if there's if there's a really large a large outcome there. A lot of uh, kind of CPG or, or direct to consumer companies, there are a few that are starting to have those really large outcomes, but um, but a lot of the a lot of the companies get um, kind of acquired at a, at a, a smaller level by some of the other like larger you know house of brands. And so I think we're, you know, always looking for, for companies that maybe have a path to that, that really large exit. That's a kind of a, a qualifying factor for us. I have a lot of friends I, because I went to school for industrial design and then, you know, worked in that space for a while. I have a lot of friends who are kind of at that level now where they're starting a startup in that space. And they're like, I have this one product. I've got an idea for a new blow dryer or something like that. And you're like, okay, yeah. <laughs> I just like when I look at that, I think like the, the product can be really cool. But like, how does that how do you think about like, well, if I'm I don't know who's like the biggest blow dryer manufacturer <laughs> like in the world, but they probably have like blow dryers is one of their hundreds of different SKUs out there. Like, how do you think about that? If you see like, OK, there's this blow dryer startup. How is that going to turn into the next thing? Like, are you expecting that they're going to become the next big appliance company or how do you evaluate that? Potentially, I think we always take a very human focused view, um, uh, both like with the entrepreneurs we back, but also customers as well. Um, so we're looking at, at, at customers that, um, or companies that develop long term relationships with, with individuals. Um, so if their business model is mostly to sell you a right. widget and then never talk to you again, that's usually le- less exciting for us or, or, or hard to scale over time. But if you're a company that's selling a product that people are going to engage with regularly, maybe there's a, um, a content subscription or there's a consumable that's, that's part of the device. Like some of those business models start to get more interesting for us, but really just represent a relationship between the company and the, and the customer where they're offering ongoing value um, to them over, over the lifetime of the product. So I think those are the things that like that, that, you know, light up our eyes. So companies like, um, it's not really a, a CPG company in the same way, but a company Tonal that we back that makes a um, at-home fitness system. It's really it's not about selling somebody weights or a kind of a, a dumb a dumb piece of equipment. It's really the intelligence system that then has a has a, a content model where they're getting classes or working with instructors over time, and, and um, that relationship, like first and foremost, makes for a great product and a great great customer brand relationship over time. But um, but it also supports a, a really good business model. I haven't gone down the like rabbit hole of like exploring the Peloton story, but I know that a lot of people are just like fascinated, not just by the product, but also the history of the company and like how long it took them to kind of grow to the size they are now. And but now, you know, it just seems like an interesting example of what you're describing. 
Totally. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm biased, like I, I think tonal is interesting because it's a, it's, it's a, the equipment itself is intelligent. Um, Peloton in some ways is a, is a TV attached to a spin bike. Um, but the bike, the bike doesn't do too much or, or it's not very, not very interactive where, you know, a system, a system like tonal, um, can actually, uh, respond to a training regimen, adjust, adjust your weights, um, and give you much more uh, personalized experience, um, over time. So, um, so I, th- I think some of those where, where the integration gets especially deep in- into the product um, and it's and it's um, yeah, just just core to the experience as opposed to tactile. And I think some of those I think the, the future of those product experiences are especially exciting. Are you excited or scared when you see someone is like really trying to pursue like something they can patent, for example, as a path? Because I, I often hear that from like early stage type of people who are like, we you know, we're going to get this patent for this thing and then nobody will be able to copy us. Yeah, the, I just don't really ever buy that. Like patents are very easy to design around. So I think as a prevention from copycats, um, it's not very valuable at all. I mean, if you're ever going to court to settle a patent dispute, dispute like you've already lost typically. Like that, that's just will totally kill kill a startup. Um, and it's very expensive for both sides too. So that usually doesn't happen until you threaten somebody else's business. Um, so the, the patent strategy we usually talk through um, with people is to is kind of look ahead in the future and see, you know, whose businesses you might threaten and, and understand where you might need some some um, um, IP protection against that against that scenario. But usually you're getting into um, getting to a, a place where you're defending against against that scenario when you're threatening somebody's business. Um, it, it doesn't it's not typically useful in a, in a scenario where you're trying to prevent copycats like people are going to get around that. How do you think about avoiding copycats in general? Like what is the, you know, what are the other ways that make you defensible against copycats when you're producing a, a physical product? The knockoffs are so, so fast. Like it, by the time you've published your Kickstarter, there's, you, you know, you usually can buy, you know, design knockoffs on Alibaba like the next day, basically. Like you, you know, that, that head start is, is basically non-existent. Um, so for you to be really protected, I think there's a, there's a few different angles. Um, usually having a strong software component is oftentimes very defensible or something else in the product experience that has a network effect or, or really the, the product itself gets better because of all the, all the people using it, whether, whether the product itself is getting smarter over time or you're, you're interacting with a social layer of other, other people. So, you know, just having the same widget doesn't help you, doesn't actually like let you participate in the same, in the same high level um, product experience. I think those are very vi- valuable. Trust is a big thing for people too. I think um, understanding where some of the the knockoffs were manufactured, or understanding the privacy and security layer of those of those products, um, can be a little bit a little bit more you know nebulous for people. And it's something people should be concerned about and thinking about in general um, if, if that's important to them. Um, and I think demanding some transparency from the from the brands that they that they work with. But oftentimes you you know you, you can't find that with the knockoffs as well. So I think that's that's another important angle if that's important to your customers. That reminds me of when Away, the luggage uh, company had to make this like very quick shift because all of this new regulation came online all of a sudden with batteries that are in, in luggage. They actually were able to navigate that really quite well. And a few startups died as a result of that regulation coming so quickly um, because there were some batteries <laughs> from some of these like Chinese knockoffs and, uh, you know, that were basically exploding on planes. So, I mean, if you can plan for that, but then also like be able to navigate it quickly, I think they, they had some sort of kit that you could get maybe even for free. And that was just a very like good lifetime value type of uh, play to get all of your kind of things swapped out for a, a luggage that uh, I guess the, the regulation says that your battery has to be removable or something like that. 
Yeah, I think there's there's always a point in time where a battery should get replaced, um, and so <laughs> like you, you have to you have to think that far. In, like to to ignore that fact um, is just sticking your head in the sand. Nowadays, everything's got the uh, Qi charging. The wireless charging is starting to become more and more common. And but I think the toothbrushes, like those electric toothbrushes, are the ones that kind of like <laughs> most people had in their home that had that kind of technology early on. Uh, I've got one that's like on its last legs, and I'm like, I don't know if I'm gonna how I, I'm gonna have to hack this thing to get the <laughs> switch the battery out. I know because otherwise it's just like a totally piece of trash in a landfill. Yep, but the, but there's some like the quips you're throwing away. You're that you're you're putting in double A batteries and throwing them away all the time too. So like there's yeah there's uh, it's it's tricky. So so yeah, this is this is interesting. This goes into like a bunch of other topics that are related to. Um, well, one thing that I want to ask you about is like the software play is really interesting because now as a consumer, I have to download like I, there's this there's this mug called Ember. I don't know if you've seen that mug and it has oh, yeah. a, a phone app and um, my co-founder Jesse has one and I was looking at it and at first I was like, I'm not sure about this. Like, you know, this is a mug you cannot put in the dishwasher <laughs> and... Right. On the other hand, I'm sitting here with a thermos and like the coffee next to me and I'm always like battling like my coffee temperature throughout the morning every single day. And I've heard some like real skeptics say that this is like a really solid product and it actually like performs like a very useful function of keeping your your drink at the right temperature for a long time. But you have to have like an app on your phone and like this whole thing is an area that feels like slightly uncomfortable to me, but I don't know what the solution is. I don't know what this makes you feel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, same thing with the luggage too. Like when they start making the, um, you know, the overhead announcements around, like if you have a smart, smart suitcase or something, you're like, do I want a smart suitcase? Or like, what is a smart suitcase? Like I'm not instantly, I'm not instantly attracted to that. And, and maybe I, maybe I feel the same thing about, about a mug too. If, those technologies and and the interface can be designed so so that the you get the value but you don't necessarily feel like you're interacting with a piece of technology um constantly i think i think that can be great and and it's it's nice i think for there to be a software layer to to devices sometimes as as long as they're not very attention needy so um i'm kind of excited about about things evolving that way but i think they i think they just needed to be designed in a very ambient you know seamless way I'll have to find the link to this YouTube channel where they were reviewing the the, the Ember mug, and <laughs> they had to do a firmware upgrade on the mug. Uh, like, you know, it's like there's a there's also a great. I, I'm not saying <laughs> I'm just connecting the dots. I'm not saying this about Ember, but there's a great Twitter account called Internet of Shit. Like, oh yeah, I'm all over that. I think that this is the the concern that people have, like playing devil's advocate on the whole thing. But it's just like. Every single product you, that you have has an app associated with it and, a, and firmware and a, a settings panel that you can go to inside the app that it's remarkable that people can keep can even keep track of like all of the things that all of these products can do. But then also it, it you know, potentially introduces all of these like points of failure in your just daily life. Oh, yeah. And how, how do we is there a way that we could get the best of both worlds? Uh, this is the part that I. I don't know how to resolve because some of those things are useful. And I, and I think companies can design them in a way where if the company goes away, the product still works. That's a big you just one. stop getting updates. Yes. And, and, but I think if people do that, that's, that's great. But any dependency to a server or if it actually needs to check in or you need to log in for your thing to work, like 
well, first of all, just don't buy that thing. Like that's just, that's going to, that's going to be dead in a couple of years. Um, you really have to be skeptical of how long, how long that company is going to be around or, or honestly why they designed it that way in the first place. I think that should, that should set off some, some like privacy bells for you too. But yeah, I think that's just, that's just a total hellscape of, of technology. And I'm, I'm very much a, a, a Luddite in my personal like daily life too. I'm, I'm not an early adopter for most mm. things. Um, I don't have a ton of gadgets at home. So I, I keep things pretty, I keep things pretty normal and, and old in my, in my <laughs> personal life for the most part. Keep, keep things old. Um, yep. yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting yeah point of view. And I, I, to me, it leads into like one of your current projects, which is the Teardown Library. Explain what what that is. Yeah, so the Teardown Library, first and foremost, is a community of people that are product designers, uh, technologists, engineers um, who are developing products. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I consider myself one of those people. I've worked with worked with those people throughout my life, and. One of the first things in most people's design process, um, when they're, when they're looking to design a new thing, um, and, and I'm mostly talking about a, a physical object here. They start by looking at how similar things have been built in the past. So you, you buy some competitive products or you look at some historic, historic, um, almost like mood board, mood board objects to kind of take them apart and see how they worked and, and try to understand the decisions that went behind, um, uh, you know, the, the design direction the, the product ended up going. And so everyone that I know has these like boxes of, of things that they've taken apart themselves in their, in their studios or in their garages, or they just have junk drawers of, of old, of old devices they're not using anymore, but like might want to take apart or try to repair later sometime. So I was really just inspired to like think about like, oh, I should probably just, you know, collect all of these things and make a common inventory that, that, um, you know, people that are pitching in devices or are interested, um, can, you know, uh, become members of this organization and then have access to all of these, all of these shared devices. And so that was really the kind of the inspiration of, of what we're calling the teardown library now. So, um, the teardown library is an archive of disassembled products that, um, you can become a member. We actually have been printing out these like funny physical library cards we've been mailing people. I love um, it. And, uh, and and so you can show up to a quote unquote branch. We have the um, kind of inventory of what products exist in, in a couple different locations. We currently have a location in San Francisco, Boston, and one kind of in New York that will be opening up as soon as people can can get together again. Um, so you can show up and 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 look at a physical uh, look at a physical product, um, and uh, and occasionally we'll host events where people can come in groups and take up take them take apart things that haven't been disassembled yet um, to talk about and add to the archive over time. The real goal, though, is to get the people together. Like a lot of a lot of these practitioners, um, you know, maybe are working in small studios or, or in you know interdisciplinary teams, but but there's not a lot of cross organizational communication around some of these things. So the high level goal is really to get the humans together too um, and get inspiration from from what people are doing. Um, and really, um, it's very empathetic to put yourself in the shoes of the original designers when you're taking a thing apart. Yes. Like whenever you're disassembling a, 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 a product and you feel like you're forcing something, like you're usually doing it wrong. It's almost a jigsaw puzzle to figure out the sequence of, of screws to take off or, or snaps to take apart to, um, to disassemble the device. Um, and it's a very similar experience when you're looking through everything. You're like, why did they do this? Or like, this is, this is strange. Like what happened? And, and that inquiry, um, and, and, and digging around inside the products usually uncovers, um, some interesting, uh, trade-offs in the engineering or the user experience. Um, and oftentimes reveals the business priorities of the, of the companies that develop the products as well, too. So, mm. you know, if you look at a, if you look at an Alexa device versus a Sonos speaker, like you see a company that's trying to support an e-commerce platform with, with voice assistance uh, versus a traditional speaker company. 
who's interested in acoustic design more traditionally. And so, you know, you can really see the, the characteristics and priorities of, of, of the companies that, that design these things as well, too. And, and so that, that's, you know, personally interesting from a, a business perspective as well. So, so that's what's been going on with the, um, the Teardown Library. But I launched that and then COVID happened. I was like, oh, God, like now we're not going to be able to get together. That's, that's really frustrating. Right. Um, so we had to take it online. Well, but this is also good because I feel like the two, you know, can work together. Um, I don't, I don't go there very often, but whenever I end up on the iFixit website, I love their teardowns and like, they'll often do it for new products that are kind of like hot new things or the new Apple products and seeing, it's just kind of nerdy and and beautiful to like understand all the details of that and capturing it in the different stages of disassembly is really useful as well. Yes. Um, But I can also see like the, you know, the ability to touch it and interact with it is really, they're, they're complimentary experiences. So hopefully once people can come visit, <laughs> they'll be able to do that too. Absolutely. So as we haven't, we haven't launched this yet, but, um, but as we're kind of rolling out our effectively art, like index of the products that we have in the archive, we're going to start opening that up over time to be able to allow people to enter products. So this is a, a large index of, of all products, basically, not just ones that we have in the archive um, and allow people to link out to other third-party third party teardowns, whether they're, you know, YouTube videos or iFixit or fictive, fictive teardowns. And, and I think the, the dream is really to have it be, you know, a Wikipedia of all products that exist at some point and, and, can, really, and can really unite a lot of the, the content. Some of it's going to be first party contributed by teardown library members, and, but some of it's going to be um, linking out to the already like amazing content that exists from, from lots of people in the ecosystem right now. It might not always be possible, but maybe you can get this insight from the engineers and like industrial designers who made some of those choices that were like, why did you do this? You know, like, what was the deal with this? Because I feel like there's a lot of reverse engineering that goes into just like an iFixit teardown because Apple is never going to tell you anything about what they did. Totally. But <laughs> so they're like, exactly. I, we think that maybe they're doing this with that thing, but right. it would be really useful to just kind of get the perspective of the people who actually designed it. When, what were the trade-offs that they were making? at the time. Yep. So we really want to facilitate that. I think that's um, difficult depending on people's employers right now, but yeah. I think we're seeing we're seeing people open up more and more about that and, and uh, especially around design for sustainability. I think people really want to show off the, the decisions they made to, to help with that. So I think there's a, there's a huge opportunity to let the um, let the original designers um, speak and I think I think people are going to open up about that. You know, I, I love the iFixit teardowns. I, they're obviously extremely opinionated um, and come down on the on the repairability side of things, you have to take all that with a grain of salt. There's fundamental trade-offs in the longevity of the devices and, and reliability um, that are often like diametrically opposed to repairability that I think you have to consider. And the original designer is 100% considered as well. And so I think you know some other some other voices in the mix that help kind of evaluate that design space. I think would be really positive. I want to come back to the the repairability point, but are, are there things that you have learned or discovered in the process of you know, breaking these different products apart, especially because you have maybe like a wider selection of things like from companies that might not be, you know, on people's minds necessarily. Like what what were some of your discoveries in this process? 
Yeah. So um, there's a there's a lot of different almost modalities that you can explore teardowns. Mm. One of them that's uh, um, I think very interesting is to look at the evolution of a single product generation to generation. Yes. Um, so you can see like look let's let's go from generation one, two, three of a Kindle and see what changed over time. Like did they make the battery bigger? How did they make space for that? Like how did they thin out? How did they achieve like the thinning out of the device? Like what changed with the the, the touchscreen? Did some stuff that used to be in hardware is now software driven? Like, what's the user interface? Like, did they that like the, the buttons moved around? Like, did they do that because they decided that that didn't work well, or did they have a problem with that? And and in, in, in how the users reacted, or or was it a reliability problem? I think you can learn so much from seeing how a company like reshuffled reshuffled things inside the, inside their device over time. So I think that's a that's a really uh, kind of compelling way to kind of ex- explore um, uh, products. Another really interesting one is to look at common features across the product. So thinking about like, oh, who's do, who's? How do I do a waterproof button? Like, what are the types of products that do waterproof buttons? Like, yes, phones mm. do them, but also outdoor um, garage remotes and things like that, or or security things, security cameras, or um, or fitness trackers. And so, a lot of times, there's this other modality where you're looking for a feature across tons of different products, and you want to be able to you know search and maybe be surprised about you know by a by a certain feature that exists on a product you just didn't think about too. So, um, we're really trying to accommodate a lot of that tagging so that you can find some of the non-obvious things um, in in other in other products. Like, oh, I really want to do like a you know a dead front LED treatment where when the LED's off you don't you don't see it and then it shines through. Like right. there's a million products have tried that before and some people do it really well and some people do it poorly. Um, and it's really, really interesting to be able to to dig into specific uh, features that way. And I just totally geek out on the historic stuff as well, right. too. So, um, you know, like we've got some like Olvetti typewriters um, that that were some of the first like for early experimentations around how do you take a desktop thing and make it portable? Like, how, like that it was designed to, to be carried from 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 the beginning. Um, and so, just I think how people how designers explored the the different you know human human product interaction at a conceptual space and and some of the tiny little like details and and, and finesse that they included in the products are just really fascinating and totally applicable to other other future product categories so I just get I get a ton of inspiration from from historical um, analogies like that are there any success stories or is it too early to say like even small things where a specific look at things that were in the in the library influenced something else <laughs> that you can point to it's it's probably a little bit early for that yeah. just you know we're we're kind of in, in in year 1 right now so um i don't i don't know that i have a um a public story about that yet um but but i think we'll we'll see a lot of those i mean for some of them if there are some I, we probably just don't know about them yet like we you know we've we've got some you know great members from a lot of the you know award winning industrial design studios in the area all the all the big tech people apple and google and places like that nike um and so and, and as well as a lot of startups too so you know it's possible that there's some success stories out there for new products that haven't launched yet um but um uh, but we'll have to wait and see I love the idea of the modality that you were describing where you can track like historically the progression of either a company or, you know, multiple companies kind of bouncing back and forth, like multiple competitors kind of trying to achieve something like we want to go towards thinness or we want to go towards like waterproofness or we want to, you know, like these kind of like vectors that people are on is kind of a fascinating 
idea. And, I, and I've seen some of that. There's a few good industrial design museums out there in the world that kind of have taken that approach. And I really love that idea. I wonder if that's, there's so many different ways that you can kind of like slice the inventory of stuff that you have, the more useful you can make it for people to see that. I think the the better. Absolutely. I mean, th- there's definitely a silver lining with COVID for for this project because I, I probably would have gone down the in-person route longer than I did. Um, and so I think a lot of that, a lot of that search and really the the database of the products, um, I probably would have held off, you know, longer. And, and I think we're we're gonna pull more of that up into our um, into our roadmap that I think supports that that modality a little bit better. Well, I have this this side project as well <laughs> called Slash Packaging. It's like if you want people want to look it up, it's slashpackaging.org, which kind of has some similarities because what what I'm trying to do with that is get any any company that makes a physical product that has packaging to share on their website at the URL slash packaging. Oh, I love that. You know, like I mean, we've got hundreds of them now, which is pretty exciting. Um, and it's just been a year, so it kind of started at the around the same time has a similar purpose in the sense that we're trying to facilitate cross-company collaboration towards how do we make sustainable packaging. Because I think we shouldn't think of that as a competitive advantage for anyone. We should think of this as like a shared set of best practices or goals that we're working towards, as well as almost like a... I really love the notion of Y Combinator has this thing called request for startups. Mm-hmm. I want I want to get companies to be more open about the things that they don't know or that they need help with. They know there's a problem, but they can't achieve their goal without someone producing a new solution. And so almost kind of like breaking through the chicken or egg problem of like, we need a solution that does this, but there isn't one on the market yet or something like that. Yep. Um, or we know there's a problem here. And if we want to achieve our goal of going to you know, 100%, you know, recycled content in all our packaging by 2030 or whatever, then this thing needs to happen sometime between now and then. Like that conversation, I haven't seen really happening in a cross company type of way before. And I think there's there's something there that hopefully companies will be willing to be a little bit more open and a little bit more vulnerable, I guess, about where they're like, weaknesses might be because companies always want to just like present everything as being perfect but that that aspect of things are in progress i think is is how companies should communicate absolutely no i I love that i wanted to come back to the um right to repair thing and it's it's on my list i really want to do an episode about right to repair because it's becoming now like a policy battle at the government level because there's certain, especially I think this is in, in the farming industry, something that is coming up a lot with with John Deere and with um, companies moving more and more towards, I guess you would say it's just like the model of renting versus owning things. And there's a, a really interesting kind of weird gray area that we're getting into with some products where you don't necessarily feel like you have total ownership over it because the company can do things to it remotely. And sometimes that's layered into the business model. Uh, I think this was like, I don't know if you ever heard about Power by the Hour. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know Power by the Hour. Power by the Hour was like an innovation of Rolls-Royce. Like Rolls-Royce makes Mm. cars, but they also make engines for airplanes and boats and stuff like that. Um, they, they figured this out in like, I forget when, the 80s or 70s. They would sell 
power by the hour. <laughs> so you're not buying an engine. <laughs> you're not buying an engine. You're buying power. And it comes with all of the repair and everything about that. So what, so you, you change your thought process of like, I'm not, I'm not buying an engine. I'm buying like power. And so then now all of the service costs associated with it are kind of like bundled in and you're paying essentially like a subscription to power. <laughs> like you're an aircraft manufacturer, but instead of buying engines, you're buying this like subscription, which is a very strange thing. But I think we're moving in that direction more and more. There's startups that will sell you furniture like by the month instead of <laughs> a thing that you can own. And so I don't know how, how you think about that in the context of what you do. In general, there's parts of that that I'm really excited about and parts of that that sound horrible. There's ways where that business model and relationship with your customer is healthy. Because when people buy a thing in, in kind of the old model where that's it's a one-time purchase, both sides are playing this really weird guessing game around how valuable it is um, you know, to the customer. Um, the customer is, is trying to understand like, how long am I going to use, use this for? And I haven't, maybe I haven't even tried it yet. So I don't know how much I'm, I'm going to love it. And is it worth that the sticker price over the lifetime of, of my relationship with this object over, over time? And that's, it's, that's very hard to know and like fundamentally unknowable. And the company is trying to do the same thing too, where they're like, you know, they're, they're trying to guess like, what price can I charge for this? I don't want to, I don't want to just be in the, of the mindset of I'm going to tack on a couple points of margin on top of what it costs to make. I want to know how much how much value it actually offers to to my customer over time. It's like a fundamentally unknowable question that's not necessarily a healthy relationship. Kind of it's very oppositional, right? Where incentives mm. aren't aligned. Like both both people are, are are really trying to arm wrestle over that. And then and then that happens and then people are either happy because they got a lot of value of, over time um, but then the the company is really not incentivized to support them uh, as much over time because at, at the end of the day they really want them to buy a new widget and so some of that relationship is 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 a little bit adversarial as well but in this other you know kind of uh, uh, you know rental or or hardware as a service or or when there's some others you know subscription over time like it, it really just p aligns incentives better in some ways, like where the company is forced to continue to offer value to the customer over time and get better over time or else they're going to cancel and not be a customer, not be a customer anymore. They didn't, they kind of didn't, you know, fleece them out of the full value of the lifetime of the product from day one. Um, and, uh, and so I think that's like, you know, can be healthier and requires, you know, companies to, to really put up and deliver value to their customers. They're going to walk away. It's, um, you know, it's not this decision at the point of sale. So I, I really like that. And then it also incentivizes the companies to make their products last longer too, because, you know, they don't want to replace the devices then. Right. And so I think that, that, um, aligns incentives around, uh, around, uh, longevity of the devices. You know, if they succeed, then ultimately that can be very valuable for the the companies as well, and the customers are happy because they they can keep paying and, and and stop if they ever if it ever stops being valuable to them. So I think the the companies, if they're successful and do offer you know lots of long time value, can be incentivized for that, and 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 I think the customers should be happy, and the and the the companies can be happy. So that actually like allows them to um to to potentially make the products themselves better and 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 kind of invest more of those dollars back into the products whether it's features or or sustainable materials um so i think there's a lot of um there's a lot of you know benefits from that business model as well in a healthy version that can be really great but i think in in modes where the 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 company is not acting as ethically i think they can try to be defensive around that I mean, and that's where we're seeing a lot of uh, kind of in the automotive space or the or the mm. you know heavy equipment space as well, where they're really they're trying to fleece people on the service model, and 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 really that that's where they're getting a huge portion of their revenues, and they're trying they're trying to protect that that bit of their their business model. 
Are there companies that you think like everyone can agree this is a good thing? <laughs> it's working well and it's better than the old way. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I think it extends even to um, like software tools like Photoshop and things like that too, right? We mm-hmm. used to have to pay thousands of dollars for a thing, and now, and now, you know, people can pay tens of dollars a month and and turn it on and off when they want to, and students can try it out without being able to, you know, pony up the full the full price of the uh, of the thing. I think that's really great, and I think it's it's true of the Pelotons and Tonals of the world too. Like they can they can ship a really excellent piece of hardware because there's a there's a content subscription on top of it that that really supports that over time. So they can effectively ship a lower margin hardware thing because um, because they make a bunch of money on the on the content on the back of on the back of that subscription. And I think that's just a ultimately a healthy healthy business relationship that's good for the customers and, and good for the companies as well. I remember there was a point in time I think it's probably abandoned, but Google had this like project where you could have this modular phone. Do you remember what uh-huh. I'm talking about? Yeah. It was yeah, like it's called Project Aura. Yeah, you would like I don't know. They had this like thin thing and then you would like stick a bunch of modules on it like you want five cameras on the back of your phone like stick five camera modules and yeah there was something cool about that but i don't think they ever made like a a real product out of it they got pretty far along though i, I mean and and you know yeah full respect to those some people that are working on that but it just sounded like i mean it sounds interesting at a high level but when you actually get down into the details of like well how do we like what are the trade-offs associated with making that happen um, it's just not, it seems it's a really bad idea from the start. Like the, a lot of those modules that you're, you're replacing to make them replaceable, you're adding connectors, which are huge and expensive and unreliable. Um, and so you're basically just making like a giant, expensive, fragile phone that nobody wants. Um, and so like, you can upgrade that forever. Like, great. I didn't want that to start with. Like it's, it's really, um, yeah, it's, it's really rough for, for uh, form factor constrained devices like that. Well, and this is the tension, right? Because I think that it's just putting your money where your mouth is, I guess, or like the reverse. Like people just keep buying thinner phones and phones that have like more of the front of it is covered in display. Like when you look at people's purchasing behaviors, they clearly want what Apple or or the big mm-hmm. <laughs> companies are doing. Like that's what they're buying. And every year, you know, that Apple removes a connector. It seems like the last one that's left is now the power connector. And it feels like that one's on its way out in the next couple of years. Like totally. they'll definitely have a device that has no connectors at some point soon. Um, Cause they've, they got rid of the headphone jack. They put in all of the, you know, electric uh, all, everything that's necessary to do Qi charging. And every time that happens, there's always a, some, some level of backlash from people who are like, but what about this? <laughs> totally. And yet people buy them and seem to like them and the stuff subsides after a few years. Um, so I don't know how to deal with that with that tension because it does make the products better in a lot of ways for what people are using them for. You have to time that appropriately. I mean, the, there was, we had the exact same discussion when we got rid of the 30-pin connector, which was a, you know, that <laughs> huge, the huge wide thing that yeah. was the old, the old iPod one that the phones worked on too. Like, that was great for a period of time, and it was there was an amazing ecosystem of of uh, accessories that supported that. But eventually, you, like you, you have to change, and and you know I think the timing has to be right where um, the benefit of the new thing outweighs the the historic things, and you kind of have to have to take the plunge. But 
um, overall, like those things are 100% going to happen. Like connectors are expensive and they're really big. If you kind of look at the inside of those products, you can start to see where the connector size actually like dominates a lot of the physical real estate inside, inside those products. So the connectors have to get smaller, they're going to get cheaper and the products become way more reliable when you get rid of the connectors as well. They're I think places that, that commonly break for, you know, mechanical stresses from, um, you know, getting torqued from people's, uh, you know, wires being attached to them. And they're, they're definitely huge, um, water ingress points for, um, for waterproofness as well too. So they definitely have to go. And it's just a matter of, of, of when I think for those. Yeah. I mean, you just brought up all the core points, right? It's like, it's cheaper, it's more reliable, it's more waterproof, it's thinner, it's like <laughs> going to be lighter. Uh, all of those things are things that people want. But somehow there's one thing that it, or one or two things that suffer from that, which is like, you know, you can't swap the battery. You know, there, there's certain things that you lose in that result. And it seems like people are willing to make that trade off. I guess, I don't know, the the kind of like big picture, like good thing. You, you, did you see this robot that <laughs> yeah. uh, Apple keeps talking about? I forget what it's called. Uh, it's got a name. I haven't seen it in person. There, there's two different names. I think they've gone through two generations of them at least. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the robot that disassembles the phones. Because these things have all kinds of precious metals and things inside of them that we want to yep. be able to reuse and make more circular. There's a bunch of interesting startups that are doing those robot arms for all of your trash too, to be able to support the, to, to strip them down into different, different recyclable components and things like that. Do you think that that's, that that's where we're going with it or, it, you know, kind of addressing the, the, the downside of what we're talking about? Yeah, I think that, and, and you can see that in some of the the more recent um, uh, phone designs as well, too, where they, um, it's not it's not something, you know, a, a normal person can do, but for a technician or, you know, for a repair technician or for somebody in a recycling center doing end of life, it is, it's easier to separate some of the, the parts that mm-hmm. need to be, that need to be treated differently. You know, that makes it easier for a human to do manually. It makes it easier for a robot to do. But I, I think that that um, you know designing with end of life in mind is um, yeah is is really important and definitely you know where the where the future is. But even just like looking at the the numbers, I think you know Apple Apple has said that they replace they, you know in their their um, you know battery repair program they repair you know between like one and two million batteries a year, um, which is you know of the billion iPhones that are out there that's that's just fractions of a, of a percent of of the phones um, and. You know, I guess part of the question is like, well, if they had battery doors, like how many, how many more would they would would be able to be repaired? Like how many go in the trash because they don't, um, which which is totally fair. But when it's just fractions of a percent, like I, you know, one hundred percent would choose um, to make something more water resistant because that is trashing way more phones than non replaceable batteries um, if if they have a repair program. So I would make that trade off all day long. But I think what you mentioned about end of life, and by the way, the robot's called. Daisy is the one that they have right now, which is that makes me just think about the the end of the, the movie two thousand one, uh, which is scary. But yes, exactly. Daisy, <laughs> Daisy can crush your skull. Daisy, <laughs> um, no, but the end of life as a consumer demand, as a as a kind of force for some other thing to happen with the devices, I think is is strong. Like maybe what we're saying is. As a society, we're still interested, while these phones seem to be getting better every year, we're, we're still interested in getting the latest technology, but we want a way for these phones not to go into a landfill. Mm-hmm. Um, can we design 
the infrastructure to make that happen? And can we demand that the companies, you know, like Apple or whoever, you know, Microsoft, Google, et cetera, are part of creating that infrastructure? And, and it feels like there's a lot of that. We've seen it, especially over the past few years in the packaging world where China has said, we're not taking any more of your trash anymore. <laughs> you, you can't send, you can't send your, your trash back here. And so it's obvious that we're going to need to figure out how to deal with that infrastructure problem, but it's a big, big investment. Maybe some of these big companies can, can be part of it. What do you think about that as a, as a kind of like driving force for the future? Yeah, um, there's so many um, there's so many axes to improve things, and I and I think people are working in all these directions, and that and I think it's really exciting, and I I definitely appreciate the I think the brands that are really you know sticking their neck out. I think Apple's definitely an industry leader. Logitech is is printing the carbon footprint of their devices on yes, the packaging now that. too, which is which is um, which I think is is really exciting to see. And so, you know, people are reducing the carbon footprint of production of the devices. They're, um, they're reducing the energy consumption of the devices, like while they're in use. And then they're definitely, they're definitely working on, on end of life as well. And specifically for end of life, like there's, there's the angle of like, let's, let's reduce the, um, the toxic and harmful um, chemicals. So, you know, when there's lead in the products and there's, you know, the halogens and and other, uh, you know, toxic contaminants in, in the products themselves, like, any recycling you do or any end of life is going to be bad. And so you want really just want to eliminate those hazardous substances. And, and we've seen, um, you know, we've seen a lot of, a lot of movement uh, in that direction in the last few years, um, which has been, which has been really exciting. And then, yeah, I think the, the other, you know, recycling programs um, really vary place to place. Um, I think we've seen that it's not reliable to have, you know, municipalities really maintain e-waste disposal. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think we're seeing more and more companies, try to do, um, you know, first party recycling programs themselves, which I think are great and are really pushing the industry forward. Um, I'd love to see some of those, that technology and programs roll back more into, you know, general purpose disposal systems that are available at a, at a city or municipal level, um, because we ultimately need that to be able to support a diverse ecosystem of, of companies building these products. Like every, every, every company should not be developing their own independent siloed recycling program. If we need to do that to get the the flywheel spinning of, of technology and, and design, I think that's great to start. But eventually that needs to needs to trickle back into into a more kind of publicly available utility. What do you think startups are able to do, whether they're like physical product startups or they're maybe involved in the kind of meta level of what we're talking about right now around the infrastructure? Typically startups are able to push on an edge of something that a big company wouldn't be able to go that far or move that fast. But some of these things that we're talking about are really hard to execute and require like government level or huge you know, like infrastructure level work or, you know, a, a startup is just not going to just like make this robot for a product they haven't even shipped one unit of uh, to disassemble it. So where do you see like startups being able to kind of be on the edge of something that moves us in the right direction? I think people are designing their products with more sustainable materials in mind um, and, and, mm-hmm. and kind of prioritizing those in their, in their in their material selection. I'm really excited by companies that are, I think, like embracing the nature of the materials. Like this is this is a little bit academic, but I, I think you know some of the some of the best industrial designs uh, I think emerge from the the characteristics of the materials themselves and, and don't try to be something that they're not. 
And I think we're still kind of in that trying to be something that they're not mode of design for sustainability, where we're trying to use post-consumer plastics, but we're trying to make them perfectly white and look like they're, they're virgin material. Mm. I think that, you know, we shouldn't be choosing sust- sustainable materials and trying to make them look like the historic unsustainable materials. I think people should really be, you know, embracing, embracing the new materials, whether they're plant fiber based or, um, or do, you know, come from, from post-consumer sources um, and, and letting them, uh, I think, express themselves in, in, in the ways that the, the materials are best suited for and letting those dr- drive different product designs as well. So, uh, so I think we're actually starting to see some of that in the in the in the packaging world with um, with molded fiber and, mm. and things like that, where you that, like you can see you can see like the expression of those materials um, that hasn't quite been happening in the in the device side as much. But we're, we are seeing lots of designs with fabric as part of their enclosure that's that's actually you know, sourced more sustainably or people at least that are they're building internal like non-cosmetic surfaces with with more um, post-consumer materials. So I'm just kind of ex- excited to see where that goes over time. And I think some startups can can start to embrace that in their their product designs and their secret power is that they're small now. Like um, Apple can't choose to do something because of the the production scale that's required for a new technology, but when you're small, you you have a smaller you have a smaller um, uh, customer base. So you can choose a, a an emerging technology that maybe doesn't have the the production capacity um, uh, developed yet, um, and and totally should chip a successful product um, and get started there too. So I think that's people's people's superpowers as, as small companies. Yeah, that this is something that most people have never heard of: diseconomies of scale. People yes. hear of economies of scales, but they don't understand that uh, big companies have this limitation, which they, they can't move as quickly or be like you said, use materials or techniques that just don't have the scale yet because if i'm apple and i need to ship you know i don't know what their volumes are nowadays right (laughs) tens of millions of devices a month or something uh i just can't do certain types of things and that's a really fascinating thing and i love the point about (laughs) even though it was academic maybe we're entering a new like uh, maybe there's an opportunity to enter a new phase of product design where there's a different kind of honesty in materials. Honesty in materials is like a very academic totally. concept of design where where you're talking about, you know, you don't want to have like a, a wood veneer. <laughs> a wood veneer is like the most dishonest thing that you can do because exactly. it's like making something appear like wood, even though it's some sort of a composite or something inside. So first of all, before I tell the story, I want to make a disclaimer. Like I, I'm, I'm about to do a little bit of like finger pointing greenwashing, uh, um, but I, I, that's that's been going on a, a lot with with people trying to have these almost like gotcha moments for practitioners doing things that are well intentioned that have unintended consequences. And right. I'm a little like I think those are very important conversations to have in a respectful way. Um, but I, like I'm a little bit like. I don't want to do that in a way that's not respectful to people that are trying, like people are, are trying to take steps in a direction of sustainability. And we're learning about these unintended consequences because people are trying about it. So I mostly want to be like respectful and supportive of those people and us all work together as a community to learn from each other, um, as opposed to finger pointing people that are trying to make environmental claims that maybe have downsides. So just want to say that, um, Good but, <laughs> <laughs> but like for all the post-consumer plastics, like that sounds great, right? Like let's just recycle plastics, but those can come from extremely unsustainable or unethical sources too. So like clean post-consumer plastics that you're going to remold again, have to go through cleaning processes. And oftentimes they're pulled off of landfills by children. Right. And so like the, the way that those materials are reclaimed and the, the environmental footprint of cleaning them is, you know, really horrible sometimes. 
Um, and so people really like, like as we're getting deeper into the supply chains and seeing what's really happening, like we have to really elevate those stories and, and learn from them quickly. But for me, that's, that's again, it's just this, it's the symptom of the not being honest with the materials, like trying to, trying to take that, mm. that, uh, post-consumer material and make it look like it's not is really wh- where, where some of the core of, of the, the problem is. Yeah. It, those things are so complex to, understand if you're a, a, a maker of things and also e- extremely complicated to communicate if you end up doing the thing that might seem, you know, less good, but is better. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's very hard to communicate that. And I've been really advocating that with the companies that use Lumi um, is to try and help make that part of their story in their communication with their customers, which is if you're going to start shipping in something that like visually looks worse, how do you include your customer in part of that story? Like we're not trying to, to be cheapskates here. We're trying to be sustainable. Totally. And and I think that if you're able to tell that story, that can be a powerful kind of like brand moment, but it, and, and it can also make people feel really engaged and want to continue purchasing from you. But it requires that extra level of storytelling, which is complex. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's a big opportunity. Like there's um, a lot of times sustainable materials, like oftentimes are more expensive and there's, there's a, there's an aspect of them being luxury products right now too. And I think people can design experiences around them that are, that are compelling. And I also think that there's a huge benefit in people really embracing their supply chains and design decisions and really being of the mindset that they're going to go one or two steps deeper and how things are made or, or what the intention was upstream in the, in the design to really, to really connect the dots and understand the full implications and, and you know, of the, the life cycle of the, the products they're designing as well, too. I think it, it requires a little bit more work from everyone and, and cooperation. Um, that's, I think, ultimately going to be helpful. There's actually one other company in the Bolt portfolio called uh, Blue Lake Packaging that is they're designing um, uh, plant fiber based packaging solutions and very similar approach for them where the you know demand trend they're tapping into are are the big brands the um, you know the the Microsofts and Logitechs and Apples of the world that are that are really um, you know telling a strong sustainability story and connecting them with emerging material science that's that's coming out of university labs um, and translating that to real production uh, capacity to be able to design some of these um, some of these packaging products their initial focus are the things that you don't see that actually get consumed in the manufacturing process so things like release liners and protective films and ESD bags things like that that are tens of billions of single-use plastics that nobody that nobody sees that are um, getting thrown away every year but what they're able to do but because being so vertically integrated and connecting all the way back from the paper mill to the the brand that's that's using um, they really have the the visibility of all those interrelated decisions along the way and, and being able to share data with people around, around those decisions um, so they can inform design design direction as well, which is which is really powerful. There's tons of stuff like the the pulp trays we were talking about too, right? Like sounds great. like mm-hmm. you know recycled material probably can be re- recyclable um, uh, have a good have a good end of life story. but those are oftentimes like horribly en- energy efficient to produce because the most of the molded paper is is uh, is molded wet and then it all has to be dried out. So basically paying for an iron or a or a hairdryer to dry out every single one of those those trays and they're just, you know, you know, order of magnitude more energy consumptive than you've even doing um, other kind of vacuum formed things and, and things like that too. So there's tons of hidden costs that you start to 
get into over time. That's, you know, not to say we should go back to the plastic things. Like we should definitely keep going for the uh, working on the molded things, but there's so much technology development around like, how do we, how do we do that in a more sustainable fashion? And, and I think finding those edges are super interesting. Let's end on this topic. Is, is this a good time to start a physical product company? Totally. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> what makes you say that? Is, what are the the things that you would be looking at if you have an idea for the type of uh, you know products that we've been talking about? In your you know you're getting started. What should people be thinking about at that point? So I think that um, at a very high level, almost academic again, but technology is integrating itself more and more deeply into our lives all around us, and I think technology reaches into the physical world all around us as well, and so the cost of all of the guts of the electronic components and, and, and mechanical things that go into, into that integration have just gotten cheaper and cheaper on the back of the you know, tens of billions and hundreds of billions of dollars that have been poured through the mobile device market. So kind of the raw material is smaller and cheaper and lower power than ever and easier to, to build off of. Um, there's lots of um, platforms and frameworks to, to, to get started as a startup in a very capital efficient way. So I think the, the raw materials are better than they ever have been. And there's a huge opportunity to, um, to kind of design the way that technology and the internet reaches back out into the physical world in really thoughtful ways. So that's all, I think, all very exciting. And then I think there's a real opportunity, like once you're, once you start to, to think about like those applications, really just to think about the hu- the human interface there of how how can we make people's lives better and how can we offer ongoing value to them uh, with combinations of, of software and hardware over time. And there's a supply chain, I think, now to be able to make less mass-produced devices that are of deep value to a very opinionated group of customers. And that that's super exciting. Or I think in the past, like success success was only making a you know, a, a faceless obelisk that needed to work for everybody and mass, mass producing that at, a high, at as a high volume as possible. Um, where now I think we can see products that are um, much more opinionated and have a lot more soul and are clearly dev- designed for specific small user segments um, where they're not as, as, uh, as mass market devices. But they're very deeply valuable to those people and have business models where they're they're able to um, to capture a lot of that value over time and build relationships with those with those groups of people. And I think that's really exciting. So through that lens, like I'm um, I'm I'm not one of the VCs that like pretends to be Nostradamus. I, I mostly talk to founders that have have the vision and back and and back and support them. So. I'm always looking for people that um, you know have kind of looked looked through that lens and, and feel like they they have identified a a subset of people that have maybe have been underdesigned for in the past, where there's a huge opportunity um, and are and are building companies and products that that offer um, deep value to them over time. Um, and I, I think that's really exciting and, and so much opportunity there. I love that. Yeah, I love that idea, and, and especially I guess this is where it ties to the bolt kind of like concept of culture. You know. Culture meeting technology and the idea that we can make products that are smaller, more opinion, more opinionated, more soulful, that come from like a community that have a specific need that can be addressed, and that the technology and like tools are there now to enable producing those things, even on a really, really small scale, uh, like just kind of 3D printing products like I, i've seen a few companies get up and running and th- they'll sell a 3d printed product or a modification on an existing product and you can start really really small that way um so i think that that is a really beautiful place to end <laughs> thank you so much tyler i could have kept going for another three hours i feel like the term academic 
we could have gotten sucked into just that concept alone. Like, (laughs) because uh, there's so much kind of like rich history of what people have tried to solve over the past like 100 years of people mass producing physical products. And I feel like we're entering kind of a new era for that. So I get we'll have to have you back on at some point to see what other like lessons we can we can bring over into the 21st century. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, we should definitely talk about that again. Like, there's all of the (laughs) natural capitalism and like the Toyota production system, like that's that's around efficiency, not not output. That's like so so much good stuff to talk about there. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And uh, it was great chatting with you. Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.